0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 59, May 2nd to May 8th, 1862. Last week, we had the Union Army advancing on Corinth. Henry Halleck and his army will be involved in that pseudo-siege for some time we also got to take a look at the great locomotive chase which is one of the more famous incidents of the war and actually made even more famous by a silent film called the general and a disney production which as i mentioned last week we will review in a patreon episode Just a note about the Patreon as well. Just want to mention while we're on that subject, we do have an episode from last month here now in April. We did The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. We did a movie review for that uh, and how that connected to the Civil War. That's the backdrop of that movie, right? And we will go ahead and just put it on the calendar here coming out soon Uh, for The Great Locomotive Chase as well, so we're going to do back-to-back movie reviews. If either of those things sound interesting to you or the memoir reviews that we have done, uh, by all means, please, uh, your support for the show is greatly appreciated. This week, we head back to the peninsula as the stalemate that has developed at Yorktown will finally be broken. We will close out by seeing what is going on with Stonewall Jackson In the Shenandoah Valley. Remember that McClellan was constantly expecting there to be a far greater force in front of him than there was. Rather than take the risk of an all-out assault, he would wait until his larger siege guns were in position. This was made more difficult by the fact the roads in the Tidewater region of Virginia were not so good for heavy travel and so they were limited. Men from the 1st Minnesota, using their skill as woodsmen, would actually cut down trees and lattice a roadway for the Union Army during this time. In May of 1862, everything was ready for the siege to begin. Joseph Johnson knew that McClellan was waiting for all of his artillery to be in position so that it could open up simultaneously rather than have certain batteries begin followed by others. Johnson, remember, was wishing to wage a defensive war, but it is unclear whether he really wanted to make a stand at Richmond. During the standoff at Yorktown, he had suggested with the support of James Longstreet to shift bases and move the majority of the Confederate army to Washington. Magruder's Peninsula Army would stay behind and hold out against a superior number for as long as possible. Washington, Baltimore, and maybe even Philadelphia would fall before McClellan could move his forces, or chase after them having captured Richmond. Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, both wishing to save the Confederate capital, would decline this option. Without this major shift of base, Johnson would look at his current position as untenable. He did not have the firepower that the Union Army did, and he realized if he stayed in their entrenchments at Yorktown, they would simply be blown away. Robert E. Lee had wanted to move as much material out of Norfolk as possible before this would occur. Norfolk would have to be abandoned without the Warwick line. Johnson would begin his withdrawal on May 3rd. Left behind were several obsolete cannon that had manned Magruder's defenses. McClellan was denied his grand bombardment as he had envisioned being seen as an expert in siege warfare. It's truly we can feel sorry for Little Mac here. All he wants is a siege, and he just never gets there. Now was now the time for the pursuit of the enemy forces. He first sent out his cavalry under George Stoneman in pursuit of the retreating Confederates. Stoneman was a New York native who attended West Point at the same time as Stonewall Jackson, and George B. McClellan. He would become the Chief of Cavalry for the Army of the Potomac and eventually be captured in a raid attempt to free prisoners in Andersonville. After the war, he would relocate to California. Stoneman would make contact and skirmish with some of the Confederate cavalry and rearguard of the army. Meanwhile, Little Mac would send William B. Franklin's division up the York River in an attempt to land and cut off the Confederates. Remember that the peninsula here in the Tidewater region of Virginia has the York River to the north side and the James River to the south side. William Buell Franklin was a Pennsylvania native that graduated first in his class at West Point. An engineer, he participated in expeditions of exploration in the West before the war with Mexico. He will not get along well with Burnside, which will lead to his essential benching for the latter part of the war. Franklin was offered to McClellan to replace Erasmus Keyes, who we talked about as missing an opportunity at First Bull Run. We will get into the action that Franklin sees shortly. Just hold that thought as he will be landing up the peninsula at a place near West Point. Divisions under Baldy Smith and fighting Joe Hooker would lead the way. Joseph Hooker had attended West Point and spent some time on several staffs in the Mexican War before resigning and spending some time in California. He will rise all the way to command the Army of the Potomac, but will underwhelm there. Afterward, he will serve in the West, but he will be asked to be relieved of command before the conclusion of the Atlanta campaign. Men under the command of Longstreet would remain behind to act as a further rearguard. Williamsburg had been bolstered with some fortifications that Magruder had built during his time in the area. Abatee has been placed all along this line to hamper any federal approach. Sumner is the commanding officer on the field, even though Hooker is part of Heintzelman's Corps. I have seen a quote from a foreign observer questioning the fighting capabilities of the older Sumner, arguing that in his 60s, the complexities of modern warfare had outpaced the command. Unfortunately for Union soldiers advancing on May 5th, it would seem that this evaluation was correct. Given Sumner's presence, the action at Williamsburg is also unique because at one point, There is a plethora of Corps commanders present, but not enough men on the field. McClellan would not arrive until later in the day. Facing off against Hooker's men are mostly South Carolinians under Richard Anderson. Anderson was a South Carolina native and West Point graduate, who will be a longtime subordinate of James Longstreet throughout the war. His forces occupy a position called Fort Magruder. Hooker has artillery move into position in a cornfield near the road he is traveling on. These pieces are from Battery H in the 1st U.S. Artillery, and we have met them before in the bombarding of Fort Sumter. With the increasing incoming rounds from the Rebel guns, many of the men from Battery H turn and run. Charles Wainwright, the artillery commander, will desperately call for volunteers from reserve units to take control of his guns after giving up trying to keep the first U.S. in place. Wainwright had even smacked men with the flat of his sword and moved them back to their guns at sword point. His call is answered by a New York battery who will get the guns returning on the Confederates. Hooker's brigade of New Jersey regiments is soon formed up on his left. They are attacked in the dense woods by a Mississippi regiment under Cadmus Wilcox, joined by rebel reinforcements of the 9th and 10th Alabama. Soon two more regiments would join the fight. With Hooker's 1st Brigade already in position facing Fort Magruder, he will deploy his last brigade, the Excelsior Brigade, made up of regiments from New York City. Of these, he only has the 72nd New York to join the line on his left. Seeing that there could be an advantage, Longstreet would move A.P. Hill into position to support an attack by Richard Anderson. Ambrose Powell Hill was a Virginia native and had fought in the Seminole and Mexican-American Wars. He will spend a large time under Jackson, but would not get along with his superior, actually being accused of insubordination. It is really no wonder they did not get along. Jackson was quiet and pious compared to the more flamboyant and agnostic Hill. On May 5th, Anderson would push A.B. Hill into the woods to turn the tide on the Union left. With their weight in numbers, Supported by George Pickett's brigade, the Union regiments will be moved back toward the road, and the position of Wainwright's guns. Hooker has to switch his regiments to meet this new threat, deploying all his reserves. Confederates in Fort Magruder would advance and fire on the artillery and remaining soldiers. The fighting is chaotic at times, hand-to-hand between the two sides. Another note about the battle which made it difficult was that it was actually raining, which added to the visibility problems along with movement issues due to the mud. Reinforcements on both sides were on standby. D.H. Hill has been recalled from his march to Richmond and will move to support the right flank. Sumner had kept Baldy Smith in reserve as he expects there to be an attack on his center. Eventually, a brigade from Erasmus Keyes' corps will advance to the sound of Hooker's fight. This is John Peck's brigade from Darius Couch's division, and they will line up on the original right flank of Hooker's line. Jeb Stuart will deploy his horse artillery, which will force the Federal line to waver combined with a rebel infantry charge from South Carolina men of Magruder. With the entire situation looking grim, Samuel Heitzelman will search for a band to play music. Heitzelman will order the band member to play, barking, it's all you're good for. Eventually, he gathers enough men to play Yankee Doodle, which goes a long way to giving Hooker's men courage. Despite the music, Anderson will eventually move all the Confederate regiments in an all-out assault that breaks Hooker's line. Phil Kearney and his division arrive on the field to prevent a terrible rout. Kearney is a New Jersey native and has one arm having lost it in the war with Mexico. Yankee Doodle is still playing, which adds to the Union morale. Kearney will run into remnants of one of Hooker's New Jersey regiments and yell out, I'm a one-armed New Jersey son-of-a-gun. Follow me. These added regiments will halt the southern attack by Anderson and eventually push his men back before darkness falls. While Hooker is engaged with Anderson, there is other action that will take place on the Union right flank. Winfield Scott Hancock will move his brigade to investigate a claim that there are Confederate redoubts that are vacant in the area. Hancock will actually be accompanied by one George Armstrong Custer. Having occupied the redoubts, Hancock is in a dangerous position on the Confederate left flank. Ignoring orders to withdraw, Hancock would understand that his position endangered the whole Confederate line. Sumner will hold Baldy Smith back despite requests to go support this advanced brigade. McClellan would soon join the scene and order Smith to send part of his division in a move to their right. These men have been marching and counter-marching in the mud. Jubal Early will lead his brigade in an assault to dislodge Hancock. D.H. Hill will join him in leading regiments through the woods in an attempt to flank the Federals. At this point, Hancock was actually going to retire his forces, but in the last moment before he orders this, Jubal Early pops out of the woods to his front. They had miscalculated how far they needed to go through the woods and found themselves in the front of Hancock's infantry and artillery. This would probably be fairly alarming considering that the plan was to come in behind Hancock's line. So, obviously, a little bit of an oopsie there. Rather than withdraw, Jubal Early will lead his men in an assault on the Union position. He would be wounded in the shoulder and forced to retire. D.H. Hill will lead North Carolina men in the same position as Early. One regiment is all that remains of the brigade, the others becoming lost. The 5th North Carolina would join the 20th Virginia, the only two regiments to face off against Hancock. Hancock will countercharge the two regiments, forcing their withdrawal. At this point, Baldy Smith would finally arrive close to dark. At the conclusion of hostilities on the 5th, there was little gained by either side. Williamsburg can be considered a draw, although the Union would claim victory, and the Confederates would use the desperate charges against Hancock as heroic propaganda. Including the cavalry skirmishes, the casualties were 2,283 for the Union and 1,682 for the Confederates. That night, the rebels would continue their march toward Richmond. Williamsburg is often considered one of these lesser known battles of the Civil War. It's important for a couple of reasons. The first is that this is going to be McClellan's first real battle in the East, right? He was out in the western part of Virginia, but this is going to be his first time on the big stage, so to speak. Williamsburg is also going to be important for McClellan more on a personal level because it's after Williamsburg, it's after Seven Pines that McClellan starts to realize that he has a distaste for sending men into combat scenarios where uh, they're potentially going to sustain heavy casualties. So that is important to note as we are moving forward. So if you recall, I told you to remember the landing of Franklin's troops further up the York River. Well, on May 7th, they would have successfully landed near West Point at a place called Eltham's Landing, and would be engaging Confederate troops. Franklin and his division had arrived too late to participate in the siege at Yorktown, but as the Confederates withdrew, McClellan had seen an opportunity to cut off the rebels. In fact, during the early stages at Williamsburg, McClellan had been busy supervising the departure of Franklin on the 5th. Johnson was continuing his retreat back toward Richmond on May 5th and 6th. His second-in-command was Gustavus Smith. Smith would receive the task of protecting the roadway and the retreat back toward Richmond. Smith would have at his disposal troops under William Whiting and Hampton's legion. Franklin's men had established a beachhead on May 6th. After enemy pickets were captured, Franklin would halt in order to assess how large the enemy was in the area. Skirmishing would take place that night. On the 7th, Whiting would lead an assault on Franklin's men. Under Whiting is the Texas Brigade of John Bell Hood. While Wade Hampton and his legion hits the Federals on the left flank, Hood would order his men forward and actually send out word to his men to keep their weapons unloaded. This would help in the element of surprise. One of his Texas troopers would disobey orders and in the process actually save Hood with a well-aimed shot at an enemy soldier. Hood had been challenged by the Federal pickets and he was in a sticky situation until the Texas private saved him. Hood would then deploy his Texas brigade and move them through the woods, driving back the Federals. Franklin would form his men closer to the landing. Facing a stronger position, the Confederates would not press a further attack. Eltham's landing would end with a successful check of Franklin's troops. As a result, Johnson's supplies would be safe in their continued move to Richmond. Casualties compared to Williamsburg were lighter, 194 for the Union and 48 for the Confederates. Soon, the Union Army would be able to see the spires and hear the bells of Richmond. Let's head back over to the Shenandoah Valley and see what has been happening there. When last in the area, we fought the Battle of Kernstown, which is arguably going to be Jackson's only defeat of the war. Afterwards, there would be a reshuffling of the deck on both sides. While the Union command in the valley was confident they had dealt Jackson a knockout blow during the battle, Lincoln was not going to comply with the wishes of McClellan and start sending him more men. In fact, James Wadsworth, who was commanding the defense of Washington, would tell the president that the forces there were inadequate for that purpose. Rather than let McDowell join McClellan, he would remain where he was in central Virginia. Likewise, Banks would have to put a pause on shifting Shields and his division to Manassas Junction. To his credit, and often I do not think he gets enough of it, even when he can be frustrating to understand overall, McClellan does argue that Jackson's force will no doubt be shifted to defend Richmond eventually, which actually does end up happening. This was an argument, of course, as to why he would need the thirty-seven thousand men under McDowell, who would have, who definitely could have bolstered his command in the siege of Richmond. Originally a corps commander, he would be under McCall and no longer holding independent command. Jackson, on the other hand, was going to reorganize and drill his current force, attempting to split some of Ashby's men to allow for less creative command, shall we say. Garnett was gone, replaced by Charles Winder. William Tolliver would be in command of the 3rd Brigade. John Campbell, the 2nd Brigade. Jackson wanted to make sure that for the rapid moves he had planned, there would be as little straggling as possible, so drill was that much more important. The strategic situation in the valley was this. Richard Ewell was ordered by Johnson to support Jackson's efforts in the valley. His division would find itself in a spot where it could be dispatched to the valley or it could move into central Virginia. Jackson also had the less than 3,000 men that Allegheny Johnson commanded. Johnson is still where he was when last we checked in with him, guarding the approach to Stanton via West Virginia. Facing Johnson is Robert Milroy and Richard Schenck, each with around 3,000 men. Behind them is the Mountain Department, commanded by John C. Fremont, able to bring a total force of 30,000 men to the field. Jackson realizes that his 8,000 men need to be used so that Fremont from West Virginia and banks from around Winchester do not converge and destroy Johnson. He will decide to check Fremont first by combining forces before dealing with banks. Moving quickly and with secrecy, Remember, he will keep his subordinate commanders in the dark about his plans moving forward. Jackson's division will combine with Johnson at Stanton on May 4th. Once combined, the army would move west. On May 7th, Milroy would fall back to a place called McDowell, which was along the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike. There he was reinforced by Robert Schenck, with around 1,200 men from his brigade. Schenck, being the senior officer, would take command. Jackson's men would deploy on high ground, called Sillington Hill. The Federal commanders did not want to withdraw in the face of the unknown enemy strength, so it was decided to attack the rebels on their position even though the high ground was called a natural defensive work. The 12th Georgia would occupy assailant in the center of the Confederate line, with regiments forming in on their left and right. Because of their exposed position and the sunset silhouetting the Georgian troops, their casualty rate was 35% of the total southern loss. Shank would try the center, which did not budge, and he tried flanking the enemy as well. Each attack was repulsed. Because of the rugged mountain terrain, neither side really utilized artillery in the battle. With darkness setting, the Union force would withdraw, having inflicted 498 casualties, as compared to 256 of their own. This is a pretty interesting battle because these numbers are surprising. The Union force was outnumbered and attacking uphill, and there was no artillery, and yet they ended up inflicting more casualties than they sustained. Jackson would pursue the retreating Yankees for some distance before moving back into the valley. Even with the larger number of men lost, this was considered to be a big win for the South. Stanton would be safe for the time being, Jackson having launched an attack to see Fremont halt his advances. Now it was time to deal with Banks. But we're going to go ahead and stop there. We had three battles this episode, so we can go ahead and call it quits. We had Williamsburg, which marks the first pitched battle of the Peninsula Campaign as well as Eltham's Landing. Stonewall Jackson will see his fortunes shift with a victory at McDowell. Next week, it looks like we're going to have another Navy Heavy episode with action at Drury's Bluff, and unfortunately we have to say goodbye to the CSS Virginia. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns? The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.